mention that Brother Floyd Blair is not able to be with us again tonight, and he was not here today. He's having a hard time. Let's uh, keep Floyd in our prayers, too, uh, and remember him in our prayers. Another announcement that um, uh, Steve and I would like to make to the congregation concerns uh, visitation uh, program that um, we are uh, initiating soon. And on uh, November the 3rd, right now is the plan, uh, in the evening, uh, right after services on November 3rd, we would have uh, a congregation-wide uh, meeting after we're dismissed here in the auditorium for all those who would uh, be interested in hearing about this uh, reorganization uh, effort. This is a program with which I've been familiar in various congregations, and perhaps some of you have uh, as well, that uh, I think is one of the most effective uh, visitation programs that I have ever seen from the standpoint that it uh, perpetuates itself in a very fresh way and uh, does not wear out, uh, so to speak. Uh, uh, there's a rotation there with uh, people being able to be with different people on a regular basis. It's an excellent program, and it's also an excellent program from the standpoint that it does not uh, call upon or ask anyone to do anything that one is not uh, physically able to do or volunteers to do. And yet there's such a wide range of opportunity uh, that is involved, that it gives everyone an opportunity to do something. Uh, if signing cards is uh, all someone is able to do uh, and not able to get out and, and make visits, that's fine. Then that's what you uh, indicate that you would like to do, and you'll never be asked to do anything other than what you have indicated on the uh, sheets that you'll see uh, on November 3rd. And we do ask that you whether you think you would be interested or not to stay on that occasion after services and uh, give us a few minutes to explain it, give out these sheets, let you look at them so that you could see uh, whether or not you would like to be uh, involved. And so this is going to uh, replace the, uh, the present group situation and uh, there is no visitor absentee list because this program incorporates uh, all of the visitors and absentees uh, in a very effective uh, way. And so it's an all-encompassing in terms of kind of uh, condensing or bringing together uh, all of our efforts in a very effective way. So I think you will be interested in it. Um, I think you'll be excited about it, hopefully. And hopefully you'll want to participate. And let me encourage you and stress uh, that um, there, this is a completely comfortable program and that you're never asked to do anything that you have not already indicated ahead of time that you are willing to do. So don't think you'll get to a meeting and say, well, I've got an assignment here that I really can't carry out. I never said I would do that. If you never said you would do it, you won't ever be asked to do it. And yet it does enable us to broaden our horizon, so to speak, in terms of getting some visits made and some things done uh, by more people than, uh, than we uh, are able to do now in the present situation. Uh, and to meet some other needs with more people involved. And that will help, uh, that will help, I think, the congregation. It will help the eldership. Uh, it will help the deacons. It will help all, uh, all of us as a congregation of God's people. So um, please uh, keep that date in mind, uh, Sunday evening, November the 3rd. Um, and if you would, just plan to stay for a few moments after we are dismissed right here in the auditorium and we will explain that program uh, to you. I think that you'll be, uh, uh, be excited about it. Certainly hope uh, that you will. And if I know White Oak, uh, you'll, uh, you'll have a wonderful spirit about that and, and cooperate beautifully uh, in that as always.
We're studying our uh, book of Philippians, the uh, love letter of Paul, as it has been called, to the Philippian church because it is a, a letter in which he expressed a deep love for uh, this good uh, congregation. And we are in chapter 1 of uh, Philippians. Tonight, we are going to look at verses 12 through 18. And that picture, incidentally, as we have uh, talked about when we had the initial lesson and showed some pictures of the Philippi area, is simply the uh, seaport of Neapolis, which is today called Kavala, K-A-V-A-L-L-A, the modern name. But uh, in Paul's time, it was Neapolis. And that's where he landed initially uh, before preaching the gospel for the first time on European soil, as you recall, having answered what is commonly called the Macedonian call, to come over into Macedonia and help us. And Paul and his company did just that, and the church at Philippi was established with the conversion of Lydia and her household, and the conversion then of the Philippian jailer and his household. And what a congregation it was. It was a congregation that meant so much to the Apostle Paul. It was a congregation that gave so much to the Apostle Paul, not only in helping him with his material uh, needs, but also tremendous uh, encouragement to him. And we, as we look at, at uh, verses 12 through 18, we might, uh, we might characterize these verses as, um, as verses that give us a, a tremendous insight into the state of mind of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the state of mind of the Apostle Paul at this time when he was a prisoner in Rome. And it's a state of mind that needs to be studied and it is a state of mind that needs to be uh, emulated. We need to appreciate the kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul expresses in this part of his letter to the Philippians and seek to imitate that kind of attitude regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves, whether those circumstances are favorable or whether those circumstances are, are unfavorable, as was the case here with the Apostle Paul. Now, from Acts chapter uh, 28 at verse 16, we realize that when Paul was taken to Rome initially as a prisoner, he was able to have his own private uh, dwelling for for two, uh, two years there, and so it was uh, a better situation than it might have otherwise uh, been for some or in some conditions. Conditions could have been worse, but think about this. Verse 16 of Acts 28 says that when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. But, you know, you think about that. That would not be a very pleasant situation, would it? Uh, granted, it might be better to be uh, in your own uh, private situation, but you are chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Those guards would change shifts, obviously, but there was someone always there, hearing every word you said, seeing everything that you did. You had absolutely no privacy whatsoever, except when you were asleep and you were not aware of his presence when you were asleep, but otherwise... 24-7, there was someone who was chained to you. And you were what we might call, I guess today, under house arrest. Uh, would be a, perhaps a similar modern-day situation. 
But while it could have been worse from the standpoint of the physical situation in which Paul found himself, it was nonetheless very trying and potentially very, very frustrating and nerve-wracking, to say the least, and he was indeed a, a prisoner at this time. Well, not only had he been put in this situation, but think of what he had endured during his life leading up to this time. But what does he say about it as he writes to the Philippian brethren? And what is his state of mind, and what are his deepest concerns as he writes to these brethren whom he loved so much? He does not go into a lengthy list of everything he has endured. He summarizes it in this way. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's concerned about the brethren at Philippi. And the indication here is that he may be feeling that they are unnecessarily troubled by his condition. They loved him very much. And his concern is not for the condition in which he finds himself, as was always the case with the Apostle Paul, but his concern is for their being troubled and disturbed over his condition. And so he writes in this portion of the Philippian epistle to reassure them and to comfort them and to encourage them. His concern is that being human beings, they might possibly grow discouraged upon learning of Paul's predicament. After all, Paul is not able to freely move about and preach the gospel as he once did. He is confined. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And so he cannot do the work that he once did. And oh, what a work it was. Oh, how he had traveled. His whole life from the time of his conversion was devoted to preaching the gospel of Christ. He wrote on one occasion, Woe to me if I preach not the gospel of Christ. He wrote again, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's total dedication was to the preaching of the gospel. And it had to, it had to be of concern to those who loved him and who knew how dedicated he was to the preaching of the gospel that now he's confined, he's confined as a prisoner chained to a soldier, and unable to do what he once did. So their thought would be, Paul, Paul is, as we would say, dead in the water here right now as far as what he, can, uh, what he can do. And how frustrating that must be for him. What a terrible state of mind he must be in. That could have been what was in the mind, as Paul anticipated it, of those Philippian brethren. But he said, brethren, if that is what you're thinking, if you are in any way inclined to think in those terms, please do not. Because here is what I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me, my predicament, everything that has happened and where I am now, all of this has actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It's interesting, the word furtherance there is from an original word that in its original form, verb form, indicated those who were pioneers who cleared the brush uh, and cleared the way ahead of everyone else so that all the travelers could pass through unencumbered. And what Paul, in effect, is saying here is these things that have happened to me 
have actually cleared the brush in a sense. They have, they have cleared the way for the gospel to be heard in places where it might have been otherwise difficult for the gospel to be heard, even by me, but also by others. My being confined has actually emboldened others to preach the gospel. That's what he will say as he explains further what he means by this. But let us not look over casually the import of this statement here and what it says to us about the attitude, the state of mind of the Apostle Paul and what a truly, genuinely humble servant of God he was. And lest we forget some of those things that he had suffered, on one occasion he enumerated them not because he wanted pity to be evoked in those who heard him or read, but because he was having to defend his apostleship against those who were claiming that he was not a genuine apostle and that he was some sort of imposter. But as he dealt with those false act, uh, accusers, in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, remember he asked, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. In other words, I'm saying these things I would not normally say, but under these circumstances I'm writing them because I'm having to defend myself against those who are trying to tell you, brethren, in this case at Corinth, that I'm not really everything I ought to be. And that I can preach it one way when I'm with you and one way when I'm not, and that kind of thing, that kind of inconsistency. No, are they ministers of Christ, he asked on that occasion? I speak as a fool, I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul enumerated those things for a particular reason, as we said at that time. Not to, not to evoke pity, not to brag or boast about what all he had done. Look at what I have done for the cause of Christ. No, the whole point was a defense of his apostleship. Had that defense not been necessary, he would never have had to have enumerated those things. But the point is, those things were realities in his life. And incidentally, a side point on that, and we've talked about this in times past, Think about all that this man suffered and is suffering at the time he writes to the Philippian church and all because some would say of some hallucination he had on the Damascus road or was it a genuine experience where he saw the Lord and where he was truly struck blind? It was genuine. And had he known or even suspected that he could have been mistaken about what he saw or what happened to him on that Damascus road? that ultimately led to his conversion when Ananias told him what to do to complete his obedience? Do you think he would have suffered those things? Do you think he would be where he is at the time that he pins this epistle to the Philippians? 
willing to be chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and ultimately being willing to become a martyr for the cause of Christ, knowing that it was all a hoax? No, remember J.W. McGarvey had said, Paul is one of the greatest proofs of Christianity, the genuineness of Christianity, because of what he saw on the Damascus Road, then what he didn't see because he was blinded, and then later because of what he sacrificed. And we've just read about some of those sacrifices. Paul is a powerful proof of the genuineness of the Christian religion, the genuineness of the gospel. Do you think someone could have exhibited the kind of fervor and constant dedication and sacrifice to a cause that he had any slight suspicion was anything but genuine? Absolutely not. He would have had to have been crazy, out of his mind, and no one out of his mind could have penned what he penned in epistle after epistle, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, Paul can teach us so much, and he can teach us so much as we see his state of mind here as he expresses concern not for himself, but for those brethren at Philippi whom he loved so much reassuring them, don't you worry about me. Don't you be concerned because you need to be encouraged. You need to be encouraged rather than discouraged because the things that have happened to me have fallen out. They have cleared the brush, so to speak, for the further preaching of the gospel of Christ. In verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In other words, it is well known to the whole palace guard, as the New King James says, uh, or praetorium. The praetorian guard is involved here. These were the guards that Augustus initially had commissioned to guard him, to guard the emperor, and to uh, uh, take care of the city. They were the elite uh, guards. And uh, no doubt, uh, they took shifts uh, among themselves as those who were chained to uh, the Apostle Paul. And if you were chained to the Apostle Paul, how much gospel do you think you'd hear if you were chained to the Apostle Paul? A lot of gospel. <laughs> A lot of gospel. And over in chapter 4, there were those who heard so much gospel, and it did so much good. Listen to how he closes this epistle in the next to the last verse. We'll get there, Lord willing, eventually. All the saints greet you. All the saints, Christians, greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The Apostle Paul used the occasion of being chained to a praetorian guard to preach the gospel. And that word spread even among Caesar's household so that there were those there who were receptive to the gospel and obeyed the gospel. Well, there's a lesson in itself, isn't it? Well, I'm not going to preach to Caesar's uh, household. There's no way they'd ever hear the gospel. No way this guard would ever be interested in the gospel. After all, he's a Roman guard. He's a Praetorian guard. He is totally devoted to Caesar. I'm going to try to get him to basically render allegiance to another king, to Christ. I'm just not going to mention it. 
No, that was not Paul's attitude, obviously. And as a result, there were those who were converted. So, the initial furtherance of the gospel that he mentions here is that the whole palace guard and all the rest, at least uh, all the rest of the palace guard, but chances are all the rest of the people, it has become spread far and wide, in other words, that I'm here because of Jesus Christ and because of preaching the gospel of Christ. So it has given occasion to an increased visibility for the gospel of Christ. But beyond that, verse 14, he goes on, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, what was it about his imprisonment that emboldened most of the brethren in the Lord to become uh, bolder in speaking the word without fear? Well, he doesn't really go into detail here, but it may very well be that they had learned that, yes, everyone knows that his chains are in Christ. He is in prison as a result of preaching the gospel, and yet he's alive. He has his own private dwelling. Yes, he's chained to a guard, but there have been those in Caesar's household who have obeyed the gospel. Therefore, at this point at least, the persecution is not there. And we can feel more comfortable and confident in preaching the gospel without fear of persecution. Now, that changed very quickly under Nero, and ultimately Paul lost his life under that emperor uh, as that persecution intensified and spread, but at this point in time, that persecution had not reached that point, not by any means, and it may very well be that that's what's involved here. Or it could be a combination of that, coupled with the fact that brethren, knowing that Paul was willing to sacrifice what he had sacrificed, that he was not down in the dumps as a result of being in in uh, uh, chained to a prison guard, but in fact had converted some of Caesar's, Caesar's own household, that, that that encouraged them. His sacrifice may have spurred them on. Quite likely a combination of factors. But there's something interesting here that Paul next writes. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from good will. There are those, this verse reminds us, who do the work of the Lord from improper motives. Uh, there may be those who preach for money. There may be those who preach because they enjoy the attention. I would have to assume that anyone who's preaching the truth, unless I have it demonstrated to me otherwise, is preaching from proper motives because I don't know a person's heart, nor do you, and we're told not to judge a person's heart. But sometimes the fruit kind of pops up on the tree and we're able to see uh, the fruit. As the late Marshall Keeble said, as I mentioned before, I'm not a judge, I'm a fruit inspector. And so sometimes the fruit becomes evident when we see evidence uh, as to what one's motive is, when those motives become clear. But until and unless they become clear, we have to give the benefit of the doubt as to why some are preaching. But the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul had reason to know something about the motives and he was an inspired man for that matter, but he had reason to know, however it was, about the motives of some who preach from envy and strife. But he gives us a little more detail in the next verse, verse 16. 
The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. Selfish ambition. There have been those who have said that these may have been Judaizing teachers, that while they were preaching Christ from the standpoint of becoming Christians, they were also trying to gather followings for their own groups and ultimately to lead them into uh, the law of Moses again, as we're studying on Sunday morning in the Bible class in Galatians, where there were those who were seeking to seduce Christians to come back under the law. So there have been those who have speculated that perhaps these were uh, Judaizing uh, teachers, or, and that therefore they were uh, adding affliction to his chains because Paul was chained to a soldier and he's hearing about all of these who are out here preaching in that way and he can't do anything about it because he can't get out of prison. And so that would add affliction to his chains because it would be frustrating and troubling to him because he could not answer them in open debate. Well, we can speculate about any number of things as to what is involved here, but we cannot know for sure. What we can know is that some were preaching from improper motives and not because they had a love for Paul and not because they had a love for the gospel, but some were. The latter, out of love. Those preaching out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now think about something with me for a moment here. We talked about this in Bible class this morning. In Galatians 5, 6, where Paul said, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And I said that's the greatest, one of the greatest summary statements of what we're to be about as Christians that I think you can find in Scripture. It is faith that works motivated by love. And that perfect love, as 1 John 4, 18, as we noted this morning, casts out fear or dread or terror. So what's my primary overwhelming motivation for serving God in Christ? It should be love. What is my primary and overwhelming motivation for preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ? Whether that's publicly, if I am doing that, or privately as a, as a child of God in trying to teach others the, the truth, what's my motivation? What is the motivation? It can't be selfish ambition. That's condemned in the previous verse. But what's the only other alternative that Paul lists here. I think that's significant. The other alternative is out of love. Where does he put out of mere duty alone in the list? It's not there. Did Paul have, have a duty to preach the gospel? Yes. But was that his overwhelming motivation for preaching the gospel? No. Was that his overwhelming motivation for living the gospel? No. Should it be my overwhelming motivation, your sheer recognition of duty, let alone fear and dread and terror? Absolutely not. As I said this morning in Bible class, we need to intensify and increase our love day in and day out so that that completely eclipses anything and everything else. It does not mean that hell is not a reality. It is. But thanks be to God for the child of God who is serving out of love, hell is an unnecessary reality. We'll never have to experience it. What does that evoke within me? Love. Love. So I don't serve out of fear of hell. I serve out of love for heaven and for the one who is there with whom I can be for all eternity. So the only two the only two motivations he contrasts here are selfish ambition, 
and love. And I should choose love, obviously, and intensify my love. And there were those who were preaching it out of love, knowing that I am appointed or set for the defense of the gospel. Well, he then asked in the final verse we studied tonight, what then? What then? What about all this, in effect? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. And that simply reminds us again of how, how much love Paul had for the gospel of Christ. Is he saying in this statement that these who were preaching the truth, that is, they were preaching the gospel, is he saying that, that they would be saved as a result of just preaching the gospel, whether their attitude was right or not? No, we can't make that conclusion. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit. That's attitude and truth. In other words, according to the will of God. But all Paul was emphasizing here is that regardless of one's motivation, if that one is preaching the truth, I'm thankful for that because people can still hear the truth and obey the truth and hopefully live the truth not motivated as the one who taught them the truth was motivated, but motivated truly out of love. But whether the truth is preached, whether, whether it's preached or not, that's, just that it's preached is something I can rejoice in. Why? Because I love the truth so much, and I want to see the truth propagated and preached to the whole world. But in no way is he saying, those who preach out of selfish ambition, seeking to stir up my affliction or add affliction, no way is he saying that unless they change their attitude, they can still be saved as long as they preach the truth. We all know better than that. And we certainly know that Paul knew better than that. But his emphasis here in our final verse that we're studying tonight is truth is so crucial, truth is so precious that I can rejoice whenever and wherever it's preached, even if the motive of the one who is doing it is not what it needs to be. And I'm sure Paul was praying for those very individuals about whom he wrote that their attitudes would change and be in harmony with the doctrine that he was thankful they were preaching. What about our attitude? We said that as we began tonight, we were emphasizing Paul's state of mind. We need to make sure that our state of mind is as much like Paul's as could possibly be. He's a human being, but that's the point. He was a human being. We cannot say, well, my state of mind, my dedication level just simply cannot be there because, after all, Paul was an apostle. He was an apostle but he was a persecutor of the church. He was a 100% human being. And therefore, I can imitate him as he imitates Christ. And if I could not, he would have never said I could. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, do just that. Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. That perfect example. Do we love the truth as Paul did? Are we willing to sacrifice for the truth as he was willing to sacrifice?
Are we willing to, in adverse circumstances, maintain a strong, viable faith and a deep abiding love for God and Christ and for the gospel and for our brothers and sisters to the extent that when we're in adverse circumstances, we're more concerned about how they are feeling about us than how we're feeling about ourselves. That was the Apostle Paul. And he provided us with an example worthy of our emulation. But one thing is for sure, we can never be like him until we do what he was willing to do when he first learned the truth. Believe it with all of our hearts. Repent of our sins. Confess Jesus to be the Christ as he was willing to do. And be buried with Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. If someone here tonight needs to do that and has not, we plead with you to do so. And if you need to come home to your first love because you know tonight that your love is not where it once was and certainly not where Paul's was as he penned these words. And that love or lack of love has been manifested in a way to bring reproach upon the church in a public way that needs to be taken care of in that same public way. Then we plead with you to come as we stand to sing to encourage you.